0: It's very clear that all beings yearn for happiness. And it's also very clear that we go about trying to find happiness in the strangest and most bizarre of ways. The Buddha had this same yearning for happiness, for peace. And most of us know the um, Buddha's life in the initial period of the Buddha's life, uh, he lived a life of it seems to be extreme luxury, where everything was being given to him, and you know you get the image of him just kind of lolling around, accepting uh, this and that. And at some point, experience stay stirring in the heart, which is very same stirring that we have, same yearning for happiness and same stirring in the heart, and um, he left the Palace of Plenty and came in contact with what are called the heavenly messengers. He came in contact with someone who was very sick, he came in contact with someone that was extremely old, and he came in contact with a dead body And then he also came in contact with um, a monk that was beaming. And this was very inspiring to him. He saw that perhaps there was another way that didn't involve the luxurious life because he saw that that was going to end at some point clearly, that he had the same body that everybody else had. Nothing was different about that. But he also noticed this this beaming face and thought, well, maybe something else is possible for me as well. So he took up a life of extreme austerity. Um, The stories are pretty extreme about what he did as a path with great sincerity. I mean, we're talking the Buddha here. Great sincerity and you know, great power of mind to practice austerities. Uh, it's, at one point, he got it down to eating just one grain of rice a day. I always kind of used to wonder, did he boil it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> did he bother to cook it at all? <laughs> or did he just try to get over it, get, get through it and... <laughs> Anyway, he realized <laughs> that neither the life of extreme luxury or the life of extreme austerity was actually a way. You know? And this is when he discovered what is known as the middle path. And this is the path that all of us are here practicing, is this very same middle path. It's really the middle path or a middle path of peace. And it's a path that leads to liberation which avoids the extremes of both self-indulgence and of self-denial. And this is really what I want to talk about tonight are these extremes of self-indulgence and self-denial and how it is possible to find the middle path. We find ourselves attempting to practice, oftentimes in quite a misguided way, trying to get rid of suffering by gratifying our desires or getting lost in self mortification or self blame or guilt. Awareness is what allows us to see the error in both ways, that they really are both extremes, that we find ourselves lost within, and seeing that we can right ourselves once we notice that we're lost. Really, awareness transmutes both self-indulgence and self-mortification by understanding that neither of these falling-off areas takes us really where we want to go. We may feel that it's not easy, and actually sometimes we experience it as very, very difficult to uh, stay in the middle we may feel battered on either side by these two kinds of conditioning and by our misunderstanding, thinking one is the way to go and will get us where we want to go. We find ourselves battered on each side because this is what we know. You know, We know the path of trying, not necessarily fulfilling, but trying to <laughs> gratify our desires. We know that path. And we also very deeply know the path of self-blame and self-mortification. You know, in the Buddhist time, um, what was meant by self-mortification or great austerity, most of it had to do with the body, of really tormenting the body in various ways. And there's all these stories about um, people um, acting like dogs and thinking that was a path, or, um, you know, barking... Um, their whole lifetime and thinking that was a path. Um, you know, when you read these things, you think, well, of course it's not a path. You know, I know that. But we do the same thing inwardly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not so different. Yeah. It's just not being physically manifested. and you know, And we don't see it when we do it. We do think that it's a path and that it's normal and that it's a good thing to do. So this is what we know. It's not that it works so well. It's just that it's what we know. You know? it's We know that it really doesn't work that well. But it is the conditioning. It's really how the heart has been trained. When we hear the word middle path, I know when I first heard this term middle path, I thought, well, I don't want a middle path. You know, it sounds so, I don't know, like a compromise or... Um, like not much pizzazz, um, you know, kind of blah, uh, middle path. I want the extremes in some way or another. You know, at least I want ecstasy. If I'm going to do any path, I want it to be a path of ecstasy. What is actually the middle path it has nothing to do with passivity. It has nothing to do with compromise. It has nothing to do with negotiation with ourselves or with the world it 's not lukewarm it 's not like this gray kind of thing, and we 're you know not allowing ourselves to um, to find to find life. I remember um, many many years ago I was um, working at this breakfast place in Cambridge, the Golden Temple. <laughs> Some of you probably remember it it was kind of a wild place. But I had to get up at um, 5.30 in the morning, and uh, I was the waffle woman. <laughs> so I'd get up at 5.30 every, every morning. It actually was a, just maybe four mornings a week or something like that. I can't remember exactly. But I'd get up a number of mornings a week. And every time for really quite a while, I would just feel this enormous resistance to getting up. You know, nobody else has to get up. I have to get up, it's 5.30, it's cold, it's dark, and it's 5.30, you know, and over and over again I would think along these lines and I would I would resist it and experience pain. And then I was very aware on the moments, on the mornings that I didn't have to get up, I could sleep in, and I was so aware of, oh, this is so luxurious and, you know, yummy, and oh, I was having such a great time sleeping in, I was very aware of the enjoyment of not having to get up. And there was a great deal of pleasure around it. So, you know, practice, 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 being aware of the resistance in the morning, trying to practice the best I could. And at some point, as always does happen, the resistance really did dissolve. And I was able not to leap out of bed with great excitement, that never happened, but to um, not find it a problem either. But the other thing I noticed is that I also stopped experiencing this incredible pleasure (laughs) of being able to sleep in. (laughs) And it was very, very interesting to me. However, what I did experience, and this is what we do experience in avoiding the extremes of um, attachment to pleasure and pain, not not allowing ourselves to enjoy pleasure, but the attachment to pleasure and pain, is what we really notice is greater sense of contentment, greater sense of real peace, a greater sense of energy and of ease. And when we experience this, um, the the little petty uh, pleasure, you know, that's there so fleetingly and really just so conditioned by getting to sleep in, You know, because of not being able to sleep in. And how long does it last? It lasted for maybe three or four minutes if I really pushed it. Uh, It's not really a, a great way to live, you know? I mean, I would always personally take the contentment over the excitement of three or four minutes a day. With the willingness to lay down both extremes. And it really is a willingness. It's not something that we have to demand. It's an understanding. It's a willingness that's based on an understanding that extremes of any sort don't lead us to happiness. In the willingness to let go of our attachment to both sides and to not believe that either side is in actuality a real path, what happens is the space between the extremes begins to widen, begins to deepen, and we actually see that there's a huge space in between, you know that it really is a path. Sometimes we think it's either one or the other. Where in the world is the path? You know? But in our willingness to let go, to lay down the extremes, the path appears. You know, it becomes visible and another way of being emerges. This other way of being is a way of peace and of freedom and of joy. It's a space within, inside, not dependent on external situations. It's a space within that is willing to be explored when we lay down the attachment to self-indulgence and to self-denial or to self-mortification. Self-indulgence and self-denial really kind of both clutter up the inner landscape. Um, There's not much room within when we're always trying to um, get something or push something away, when we're always drawn towards something usually external, or when we're pushing something away internally as well. Looking more closely now at self-indulgence, just to take up self-indulgence for a little bit, this culture defines freedom in terms of indulgence. And that's something that I find very, very interesting The culture oftentimes defines freedom as the freedom to consume whatever it is that we want to consume, to travel wherever it is that we want to travel, to collect pleasant experiences, you know, to accumulate pleasant experiences. The advertising in the culture, which none of us are free from, all of us have been subject to moment after moment of mind-numbing advertising fuels greed and defines freedom in terms of accumulation, you know, for good reason. Advertising, money, accumulation brings happiness. It all makes a lot of sense. It's just that all of us have been subjected to it in one way or another. And I think even if we've rejected the culture, we still need to look very deeply at that which we may not have fully rejected, that which we still find ourselves enslaved to. The dominant message is that happiness is achieved by getting. And there is a very deep conditioning around this that I think needs to be equally deeply questioned within ourselves. There used to be, I don't know if it's still around anymore, but a, a number of years ago there used to be this very glossy um, advertisement in magazines uh, of advertising a particular perfume. And it looked very exotic and very beautiful and, you know, kind of very enticing. And then you look at it clo- more closely, and um, what they were calling it was samsara. This perfume <laughs> was called samsara. Now, for those of you who, you know, know what samsara means, it's it's going around and around and around in suffering. It's not so great. <laughs> yeah. you, you, you would be you, know, you really would not be drawn to it if you knew anything about it. But it was so interesting, making it into a perfume. I thought it was perfect in its own way. you know, kind of diabolically perfect in the advertising world's mind. But questioning does getting really? bring satisfaction. Maybe we think automatically, no, but just to look deeply and to see if there are little bits of ourselves that do believe that, or a lot of ourselves that believe that. Or does it just create more desire? I want to read a fable to you. A dying woman awoke and found herself in a magnificent home perfectly suited to her tastes. She gazed about in satisfaction, but eventually she grew hungry. This would be perfect if I only had something to eat, she thought. And instantly the kitchen was stocked with the foods she loved. As she feasted, she thought to herself, this would be perfect if only I had someone to share it with. And instantly the perfect partner was beside her. (laughs) She could barely believe her good fortune. In fact, she was filled with delight until she thought this would be even more perfect if we could go somewhere. Instantly, an expensive new car appeared in the driveway. (laughs) As time went on and every wish was granted, the woman began to notice that her wishes were crowding in upon one another. The thrill of acquiring each prize had vanished, leaving her feeling increasingly frantic and dissatisfied. Listen, I don't know what I did to deserve this place, she finally said to the person in charge, but I don't like it. Could I be transferred to hell? The head woman looked puzzled and asked, and where did you think you were? <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm doing the eyebrow thing, but you probably can't see me from, <laughs> from back there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Need is very, very different than running and trying to fulfill every dire desire that arises. Need is very, very different and the path includes a greater and deepening appreciation and awareness of what our needs are. It's really essential to notice and identify and acknowledge our needs. It's really not at all separate from the path. It is not other than the path. No. Sometimes. When we practice, when we sit, we do begin to examine and notice needs that we haven't been able to see before. We've pushed them so far under as if they shouldn't matter. Now, And awareness brings everything to the surface. And this is a very beautiful and loving thing. It is totally appropriate. All of us need security in our lives. All of us need financial security as much as possible. All of us need the right kind of housing, the right kind of shelter. All of us need the proper kind of food and nourishment. All of us need healthy relationships and and loving guidance in our life, and these are really needs. The suffering arises when need slips into greed, when there is this kind of slipping of need into greed. And... We need to be sensitized to when this shift happens or if this shift happens. And we need to be, I think, very honest about this shift. One kind of way to notice the shift is, is there oppression inwardly occurring? Are things becoming a burden? Is that which was fulfilling and satisfying, truly fulfilling and satisfying, actually bringing suffering. And sometimes we don't even want to notice that it's bringing suffering because there's something quite compelling and fascinating about the greed because some of our conditioning is to think that greed is good. So um, that's a way to notice, is to notice any degree of burden or heaviness or suffering occurring by being awake to this we don't need to be imprisoned by conditioning. We can develop a confidence that comes about with the capacity to do without without self-sacrifice. You know, to really look very carefully free from cultural assumptions about what we've been told that we need. And a growing recognition a growing recognition between not needing it versus thinking that we should have to have it or that we shouldn't have to have it. In this space, there is a growing sense of contentment, and it's a process of discovering when enough is enough. You know, that that, that contentment that lies within when we understand that enough is enough. One of my teachers in Thailand, uh, Ajah Mahabua, used to say that nirvana, the realm of nirvana, is enough. Yeah. In other words, in each moment where there is this knowing of enough, there is nirvana, there is liberation. The middle path of awareness opens us up to what our true needs are in allowing us to see the distinction between need and greed. It really also allows us to see what our true, real needs are, and this is essential. We see that perhaps fear has inhibited us from moving in certain directions. We see that perhaps fear has inhibited us from changing in certain ways that are necessary to change within. Awareness of the extremes of self-denial and of repression. This may help us to discover that we haven't been caring for what our needs really and truly are. We may discover a very deep need to love and to be loved that we have denied and pushed away in our life. We may discover a great need to um, be creative and to express our creativity, you know, to to share ourselves with the world and to really um, allow Uh, what sometimes is called the Ten Talents, you know, all of us having certain talents in life, allowing these talents to be developed and to be expressed wherever they lead us, really allowing our life to be an art, an artistic endeavor. It's not about getting attached to an idea about what we should need. It's finding out for ourselves what our true needs are, looking free from judgment at the inner environment. Sometimes on a retreat, we can see uh, self-mortification or self-denial occurring in very small ways that can help us to see how we are in our everyday life. Because everything that happens on a retreat, we think it's so special and so different. But actually, everything that happens on a retreat really simply illuminates everything that happens usually in our everyday life. So just taking the example of sitting in a posture in which the legs go to sleep after 20 minutes every single time one sits. And we think that's normal. You know, We think that we should just be able to work through that and we'll get to this great place and we'll be able to ignore our legs And sometimes it can be a great middle path to simply move from the cushion to a chair. We're actually attaining the middle path in moving from a cushion to a chair. It's such a tiny thing, but oftentimes the ways that we deny ourselves, the ways that we um, torture ourselves on a retreat, we can actually see the same thing happening in our daily life. It's so kind of vivid and clear in this environment. And we can take it to see how the same energy is operating outside of this environment by how we are here. So really, all I'm suggesting is to notice the habits, to notice the patterns, um, you know, and to not see it as just confined to this particular situation, but as something that we can also see in our life at large. Sometimes we um, we go in the opposite direction with this as well. Um, I was walking down the street here a number of years ago, and a friend of mine went by, and um, I waved at her, you know, kind of like excited and wild, and she turned away and ignored me and pretended she didn't see me. And I thought, oh, this is odd. You know, maybe she's mad at me, maybe, you know, da-da-da-da-da. So... Um, I caught her the next day and I said, did you see me, you know, why, why didn't you say hi? And um, she was really embarrassed and she said that um, she was driving this really fancy car and she was embarrassed. <laughs> and so she wanted to like sneak by me <laughs> without seeing it. I mean, she didn't know who she was dealing with. All I see is color <laughs> in, in terms of car. I wouldn't recognize whether it's a nice car or not. I mean, I would just, you know, know it's a car and it's red. Or it's black, or whatever it might be. So you know, she didn't have to worry with me. But it was so interesting. You know, we can just see this in ourselves sometimes, kind of like a, a uh, thinking that we need to be sneaky about um, something that's so so trivial, so so nothing. Um, this kind of over identification with things, uh, yeah, and just just the awareness of this as well. To move to a more subtle level which is the inner level, looking at self-denial and self-mortification as applied to the inner world, we can see that oftentimes we fall into two extremes inwardly, that of fantasy, which is the kind of addiction to pleasure, and that of worry, which is the um, kind of draw to pain, we can find sometimes in a given sitting moving from the desire to fantasize to the desire to worry sometimes this is what we see in a sitting over and over again worry wanting to fantasize wanting to fantasize wanting to worry you know with worry sometimes we think it's um, more ethical than uh, <laughs> than fantasy but still you know we we feel the pull to both very much we bounce back and forth between the two oftentimes and just just to look at fantasy for a moment to look at what our relationship is to fantasy to look at the compulsion to fantasize and also you know sometimes if a fantasy is happening if we're drawn to the same particular fantasy over and over again as Many times we are because we nourish it so it becomes good, and then we're drawn into it over and over again. Um, just to to notice what that fantasy is, you know, to be aware of the storyline, I think is quite important as well. We can get very much lost in pleasurable ideas. You know, on a retreat, it's very, very interesting to see this because there's, there's not much other pleasure available to us. After lunch, it's kind of all downhill. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I noticed with um, tea yesterday it was being called a simple tea and I, <laughs> I, was, um, you know, I was wondering whether, what the reactions would be to the tea being simple. You know? <laughs> but so, so, you know, lunch is the high point. And then after that, it's really just thought that sustains us, uh, us in terms of pleasure. I mean, we can really see how our, our thoughts can be so pleasurable, can really draw us in. The inner world of fantasy can be really, really strong and compulsive. There can be very easily the habit to use, to employ fantasy, to chase away boredom. You know, whenever things are a little boring or a little neutral, um, to pull in a good fantasy. Um, Certainly when there is pain happening or worry happening, um, we tend sometimes to run towards fantasy as a way to alleviate the pain, as a way to alleviate the worry. And to ask ourselves, does it really work? Yes, it works for a moment or two. You know, yes, it works, and the bell will ring a little bit faster if we're lost in a fantasy versus being with the pain. But what happens when we pop out as we do? I actually do see when you're in a fantasy and then, you know, you come out of it, it's like it's almost like a popping out. You know, sometimes you can feel that popping sensation of, you know, (laughs) because it was air. It was like a bubble, you know, it was a balloon. And it always is going to get popped. You know, sometimes people ask, well, isn't it possible to just remain in fantasy forever? <laughs> and I don't think so. I mean, if you discover that, let us know. But <laughs> always one comes out, always one comes out you know, at some point. And what does, what, do, what does very much happen is that when something difficult occurs in her life, um, and If we've tried to rely on fantasy as a refuge, we really find ourselves high and dry. Yeah, I'm sure m- many of us know that, that th- our favorite fantasies don't sustain us when we're in the face of great grief or of great difficulty or great loss. The problem with fantasy is that it's fantasy. Now, it's not real. It's not actually happening. We're conjuring it up, and so we can't depend upon it because of that and it doesn't last. The middle path allows us to commit to seeing fantasy as fantasy. It's not easy. You know, it's hard because of its seductive nature. It really has a siren call that pulls us in. And we may not trust that there is anything else other than fantasy. Iris Murdoch said, Human liberation begins when fantasy ends. Human liberation begins when fantasy ends. I think there is an invitation in that, to let go of fantasy so that we can see what else is there, find out for ourselves. Applying mindfulness to fantasy does disempower it. It reveals that something else. Examining fantasy... Allowing ourselves to be aware of the pleasure element, not simply get lost in what the fantasy is, may lead to um, what is behind it. It may lead to the source of it. In other words, it may point out to us areas of lack. That's why I'm saying you know, if there is a repetitive fantasy happening over and over again, um, it warrants our just simply noticing what it is, not so much analyzing it or um, anything like that, but just, just trying to get the drift of it um, by being aware of it um, so that we can see what is actually happening underneath it. You know, what, what lack is it pointing to? And if I run out and try to satisfy it in a real way, um, am I going to feel any better? Is anything going to be different in my life? We might notice when we see areas of lack that uh, that things might be worked with in a different way or a more skillful way, that there really are some changes that we need to make in our life. And being aware of fantasies can help us to do that. Following fantasies to their source within the heart may lead us to an ache in the heart. You know, Right, because that's really what we'll touch if we don't get involved in it. If we don't get involved in the storyline, it will bring us back to a sense of deprivation, something that we're trying to fill up, you know, with pleasure. And if we can follow it, if we can go back to that sense of lack or of deprivation, we may find um, an ache in the heart that does need our attention. And that's dealing with it at its source rather than following it out time after time again, only to have to come back. You know, always to have to come back, only to have to come back. And so, again, doing something that feels quite radical sometimes, you know, to stop, to let go, uh, to not get carried away, and to feel very clearly with with clear awareness that ache in the heart, that that wound in the heart that which really is aching to be filled, but is not going to be filled by a fantasy. Mm. So if we can bring awareness to it, this is how healing occurs. This is how connection occurs. This is how we find something that really is other than fantasy and that actually is real. The other extreme, of course, is worrying. Worrying is the other extreme. And it has the same compulsive feel about it as fantasy does. It's just sometimes we feel it's more valid to worry than it is to fantasize. feels more like we're getting something done, like um, it's our duty, you know, it's our obligation in life to worry. We can believe that very, very deeply, that it's our, our um, you know, it's... It's something happening really if we're worrying and not just being present. We can also spend an awful lot of time trying to figure things out and not seeing that as worry when it actually is. You know, we have this very elegant word called planning, which of course we do have to do from time to time. You know, one had to plan to come to this retreat. Um, You know, planning, of course, is really necessary in one's life. But it sounds so great. It sounds so elegant. It sounds so necessary. Actually, what we want to look at, I think, is how much a lot of our planning is really just worrying. And we can see this. Planning once is planning. Um, Planning um, a trillion times is probably worrying. Another kind of way we can see the energy of worry is noticing how much we rehearse before we go into particular situations. We rehearse um, what we're going to say to people. We are probably rehearsing now what we're going to do when we go home and say to people when it's not even happening, they're not even around. And it's not going to happen that way anyway, as we know it. The other person's not going (laughs) to (laughs) cooperate. All those people in the meeting that we've rehearsed, (laughs) they're not going to all decide to say what we want them to say, unfortunately. (laughs) Hmm. Awareness disempowers worry. It really takes the charge out if we're willing to be aware of worry instead of engaged in worry. Eventually, it doesn't happen immediately, but eventually, over and over again, it begins to take the charge out. Mindfulness actually deconditions the mind. So it really works against worry. It's a very gentle leaning into it and allowing it to cease. It doesn't mean that it will necessarily um, not arise as a pattern, but awareness sees it for what it is understands more deeply its compulsive nature and gradually, gradually, gradually allows it to be dropped. So if we can be mindful, aware, and um, aware that we don't have to do it, you know, aware of how much of it is unnecessary, we can, as I just heard someone do, breathe a sigh of relief. And this is the middle path. Some of what fuels worry and anxiety may be guilt. Whether it's warranted or not, guilt is an extreme kind of conditioning that we have. It's an extreme side of the middle path. Over past actions or past speech that we're going over and over again in our minds. On this path, there is a great distinction made between guilt and remorse. It's a really important distinction that is made. The practice does sensitize us. When we sit, simply sitting, noticing what's happening, we do notice areas where we wish that we hadn't done what we've done. We notice areas where we wish we hadn't said what we have said, and that's all part of the path. It's called uh, waking up. It's called um, being sensitive to past actions. But when we fall into guilt, we find that we're caught in something that is actually quite circular and really doesn't show us a way out. It really goes nowhere and it does indeed drain our energy. Whereas remorse is actually energizing, it helps us change if change is indeed necessary. It helps us heal. It helps us to become whole. And it allows for a dropping of patterns that truly do not serve us anymore. So remorse is a softening into, it's a seeing with compassion how we've treated ourselves. It's a seeing with compassion how we have treated others. And it allows us to naturally let go of that which isn't working. When we fall into guilt, we perhaps need to reflect that we've all made a million, trillion mistakes in our life and we're likely to make many more, you know, because we're on this path and because we're human beings and some degree of allowance and accommodation to make mistakes and to let go, you know. If we practice being present here and now, if we practice being mindful in the present moment, we really are in actuality letting go of the past. We're not just letting ourselves off the hook. We really are meeting the past as presented in the here and now because in each moment we always are meeting our past. That's all we're meeting is our past over and over again. So here it is. You know, We can't go back into the past by thinking about it and changing it and changing what we wish we'd said, or what we wished we, we'd, we had done. We can't do that, this is impossible. But we can be mindful in the here and now. Every moment can be fresh, and we're doing the work that we need to do by being mindful here and now. You know? Because when we are, we really are transforming the present moment, and this is a transformation of the past. Sometimes I think too we we get so guilty about things that don't matter at all. And then sometimes we don't feel the tiniest remorse about maybe something that we should feel, you know, some degree of remorse about. I just I just find that whole whole realm kind of very interesting about obsessing about something we said 10 years ago that probably the person didn't even hear or heard in a really different way. And then something else that maybe really did hurt is too painful for us to acknowledge. So you know, all of this is material for practice. That's really what it is. It's material for practice. And if we can avoid the extreme of self-mortification, of falling into guilt, if we can instead walk this wide middle path of awareness, there is a healing. There is a transformation that occurs Looking at one last area, which is the application of the middle path to the emotional life, looking at how we react to strong and powerful and difficult emotions, looking at how we react to depression, to loneliness, to shame, and to anger. When we experience very difficult and powerful emotions, we can't just want it to go away. I mean, we can, of course, and we do, (laughs) but it doesn't behave. You know, these emotions do not behave. They don't cooperate with us. So just simply wanting them to go away is really not a way out. Our conditioned tendency is to dwell in, you know, to build upon, to add to the difficult emotions when they arise, or the alternative And sometimes we think there are only two alternatives. The alternative is to judge it and to deny it and to try to push it away as quickly as we possibly can. So these are the two extremes we fall into. Dwelling in, building a case around it, adding to it, elaborating on it, making our home in the emotion, or trying to pretend it's not happening, denying it, condemning it, condemning ourselves for even feeling it. And to step onto the middle path means to be aware. This is what stepping onto the middle path means. It doesn't mean that it's a problem to dwell. It's that we have to be aware of dwelling, because then we won't dwell any longer. It's not that it's a problem that condemnation arises as a tendency. It's to be aware of condemnation so that we don't have to continue to condemn These reactions are not in and of themselves a problem. They arise on their own. But to meet them with awareness, to meet them with awareness, allows them to be let go of. We can experience quite a bit of condemnation and guilt about even experiencing difficult emotions at all, thinking I should be beyond this. I experienced this before, I thought I worked through it, I should be over this, or it should be different, it shouldn't be happening. The middle path of awareness teaches us to gently hold that which is occurring, to contain, to bear with, with affectionate attention, to bear with until these emotions cease on their own, neither following nor trying to get rid of neither following after and building up nor trying to get rid of. We can know these emotions as nature passing away in their own time, arising and passing away, just as this kind of unusual weather has been coming and going. And we think of it as natural. Now, we don't make a little bit of fuss about it, maybe, but we don't make a huge degree of fuss about it because we know it's out of our control. And we also know it will change. So it's the same way with the emotional life, bringing awareness to the emotional life and watching it change, treating it as natural, which is what it is. If we feed and add and dwell in, it will be perpetuated. If we turn away from it and hate ourselves, it will be perpetuated. Not following and not trying to get rid of. The middle path of awareness is a path That allows us to recognize our inner capacities, our inner capacities to let things be. The inner path of awareness, the inner path of peace, brings about a balance of heart, an inner steadiness of heart. So let's be aware, let's be mindful. Let's be present in the here and now. Let's allow ourselves to walk this quite wide road that appears in front of us when we are not caught or lost in the extremes. I want to end with, um, with something that um, is a little bit odd because I've been talking about a wide path and um, the name of this poem is On the Razor's Edge. <laughs> Nonetheless, we can learn to balance on the razor's edge only by staying present with our sense of uncertainty rather than taking sides in our inner debate. When we give up preconceived agendas about what should happen and open to the energy in our uncertainty instead, we become more present and discerning. Then we may see how our fear is trying to argue us out of our love and how our passion is trying to override our caution. Only by boycotting the struggle, neither suppressing nor indulging either side, can we begin to dance on the razor's edge, otherwise known as the middle path of awareness. Okay, Let's just sit for a moment. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings have compassion of heart. May all beings live in freedom.